Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. Thank you, Brian. And thank you guys again for joining us. We're in this series called House Church. It's uh, what happens when we bring the faith, uh, when we bring the gift of grace into the home. When those things come together, it's a powerful, powerful mix. And we have this text here. It's really going to be a study house church in the book of Ephesians. We have this amazing text that is about alienation, the most amazing and profound separation of all time, uh, to be alienated from God, apart from Christ. And, uh, you know, the root of that word, alien, like we just offered these prayers for those who feel like they have no home and they know what real separation feels like. Paul's message and the book of Ephesians is really about that. And in so many of his letters in the New Testament, and really the gospel itself is about bringing together those separated pieces. Us joining our hearts in Christ Jesus. Because of what he did on the cross, we can have a reconciliation. It's one of the biggest themes of this book and of the New Testament. Bringing together alienated and estranged parts. You know, um, you ever felt like that in your home? You know, they get that term, a broken home, come from a broken home, or we know a broken home. Uh, I, I by no means came from a broken home. I was so blessed, had two wonderful parents, I still do to this day. And yet I had a kind of an estranged, alienating experience. It's my second summer, my second college job, I went to work for my dad. My dad is a founder and operator of a trucking company. I was uh, 20-something, and I, I took this job that was just under the title of paper clerk, paper clerk. Of course, I took the attitude of should be running the place soon, uh, which was, just got me wrong from the get-go. Uh, and, and I was working with this guy. I was working with a gentleman in one of my paper clerk responsibilities, the guy who did claims. He was the manager, the lead person for claims. You may understand in a trucking company, there's customers and their materials in the truck might get damaged or something might happen. So he's handling those issues and, and I'm helping him. I don't know what I was doing, proofing the letters because there's a letter that goes out right? There's a letter that goes out to the customer saying, sorry, but you signed a waiver for this or it was something you did or whatever XYZ reason, uh, we're not going to honor your claim. And I'm reviewing these letters and after a few weeks, you know, I've got the hang of it, so I'm just signing them at the bottom, you know, signed Ben Appleby. And uh, you can imagine my dad's uh, um, unsettled nature when he gets a call one day from a customer saying, uh, I'm looking for Ben Appleby. Who's denying my claim? and What the heck is going on? And my dad says, hold on a second. What's going on? Handles the issue. Uh, the very next call is for me to come into his office because here I am thinking that I am way over my head. I have these responsibilities. They should be delegated to me. I know what I'm doing. I've been here a couple weeks. I should be able to put my name at the bottom of the letter. And 
So there's some sparks that fly. My dad, I'll never forget what he said to me. Uh, the words came out of his mouth. It shows you how powerful words are. I realize way up to this day how powerful these words were for me. But he said, uh, Ben, you know what? You can get a job anywhere you like. Um, you can go dig a ditch for all I care. But at this place, you're a paper clerk, and this is what you were signed on to do. And it hurt. It stung. Uh, digging a ditch, quick backstory, is a reference to my previous summer job. My previous summer job was at a Christian kids' summer camp, and I was on facilities. And I remember telling him a story about how one day all we had to do for half our day was just dig a sand ditch right in the sun. And yet that was more meaningful for me and more valuable for me because I was a part of this, you know, this big mission, this vision. But it didn't matter. The stripe had been earned. He said those words, struck me right to the heart. And so what did I do? I iced him out. You guys ever ice anyone out in your family? Anyone ever like to freeze out a family member? Do you know what I'm talking about? You kind of just like push him out emotionally or communication-wise. You're going to let him hang out to dry a little bit. You're making him pay, right? Well, that's what I did. I iced him out. And I think there's several of us who come from a home experience like that. You look at the statistics, and there's maybe half of us are affected by divorce, and then another percentage of people were affected by abuse or neglect. Maybe that's you in the room. And then there's not a single person in the room who hasn't received some kind of wound, like the story I share this morning, some kind of stripe that they took at the hand of mom or dad or the parent figure in their house. And the gospel, you guys, what, we just, what Brian just read for us on the screen, is bringing together the broken pieces, the alienated, the iced out, the estranged pieces. And there's a big idea that I want to talk about, and here it is. In life, before the cross, before coming to knowledge of Jesus and after, we slip, we miss, yet we are sent as God's gift. We slip and we miss. We mess up, certainly before coming to faith in Jesus, still after we battle this thing called sin, we battle against this thing the Bible calls flesh that we're going to talk about. And yet on the other side of salvation, this work that God does miraculously, rather miraculously, he enters into our life, he initiates, we respond to what is called a perfect gift of grace, and we have new life. We are a new creation. It's called regeneration. We're a new creation, somehow, miraculously. And Paul is going to talk about how this works in the life of the believer, how to, we are separated once, and we are still sometimes separated with our sin, and there's a mystery of recreation. Let's look at Ephesians 2. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, we have to stop right there, okay? We just started. Okay, verse 1, you were dead. You were dead. Not sick, not dying, dead. All the way gone. Why? Why is the degree an important point of emphasis? Well, guys, because... In the prevailing cultural thought, in the worldview of the world, uh, we may just have one little piece that's off. You know, we may have just this one limping or broken piece. You know, we're not as good as we could be, but we're not depraved. And, and pretty much everyone's just a good person. We're all just a pretty good person. This is a unique proposition of the Christian faith, you guys, that, that we're wrecked, that apart from Christ, that apart from Christ, we're a total wreckage. And you're going to see on the flip side of that, that we're, but we're not beyond saving is, is incredible and a unique proposition of the Christian worldview. All the other worldviews, all the other religious or spiritual systems, there's a sliding scale. There's rungs on the ladder. There's earning credit and points. Not in the Christian worldview. Before meeting Jesus, responding to his prompting in your heart, dead. Dead on impact. 
We slip and we miss. There's two words there, two incredible words, transgressions and sins. In the original language, paraptoma and hamartia, transgressions and sins. It means that we've slipped off the path. That's what the first one is, transgressions. It means we slipped. And then the, the second one, the word for sins, hamartia, is a marksman term. It's like there's a target and we don't even hit any area of the target. We've missed completely. And I think it just speaks of this amazing inability for, for all of us, really, to the lack of ability to march in one focused direction for any length of time. So because of that, we slip. We're off the path again. And we don't even get close to hitting the target apart from Christ. We're a total wreckage. Here's an important point about this. This is not just the doctrine of sin. Just for those who have been in church in a while and you're new to it, you're thinking what I'm going to say next is, yes, this is a great tool to wield against those who are unbelievers, and I'm going to scare them into heaven by talking about this doctrine of sin. No, what I see Paul talking about is that it's just a permutation of life. It's, we're just soaked in it. Before meeting Jesus, before his saving work, it's a permutation. It, it's rides through the crust of our mind, body, and soul. It's just in there all the way in and through. But even after, if you're anything like me, you're asking that question. Okay, Ben, pretty bleak so far. Great start. And maybe that only affects people that are not believers. Okay, well, even after we're saved, we still slip and miss, don't we, a little bit. But why? Paul's going to talk about that. Verse 2. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path. Now stop there for a second. According to the world's path. You guys, what we have to understand as we ascribe to this way of living. Most of us in the room are believers. We've been Christians for some time, and yet we still subscribe to the discipleship model of the world. We're still signed on for the mentoring program and the training program of the world. That is status, fame, credit, acknowledgement, hierarchy. We're still signed on for the discipleship pathway of the world, which is self, self as center. And yet there's the way of Jesus, the Jesus discipleship path, which means who's in center? You get to answer in this type of routine. It's fun. Who's in center? Jesus is the right answer. Teenagers in the room got it, and a couple of you others, way to go. You could still answer Jesus today and get credit for the right answer. Way to go. He is the center in the Jesus model of discipleship. Way to go. It's very simple. There's the, the world's way of discipleship, and there's the Jesus way of discipleship. Paul says that the world, there's a challenge of the world. You know what? Here's where I want to go with this. I think practically where we take this is that we've, we've, we're so <laughs> inundated and so washed over our mind with a, with a classic Western uh, view of free market exchange policies and, and, and co-modifying everything that we think. Fairness. Everything must be fair. It's got to be fair. Think about this, how this plays out in the home. In, in the training ground, that's the base. We're going to be sent into the world. The base, the training ground is the home. And how does this play out? Well, you know, I do the dishes on my day. You know, I do the dishes on the days that I've been spelt out. Even if you're not married, you've got roommates. I do the dishes on my day. I take out the trash, and she does the dishes. How many men? There's a couple of men who think that's their only job is just to take out the trash. I know me and Bucky are in that camp. Uh, how about this one uh, for fairness? When I'm sick, I get a pass. I get a pass. Time off. Time and a half when I'm sick. And everyone else gets to serve me. You do this, I do that. It's only fair. It's only fair. Let me ask a startling question to you. 
Think about this. Again, especially career Christians like me in the room. What if there was nothing in it for you? What if there was nothing in it for you? This whole thing on the other side of responding to the gift of grace and what Jesus did for us on the cross. What if there was nothing in it for you in terms of the world standards? But that we started looking more and more like Jesus. How incredible would that be? If we could forsake our, our, you know, beautiful, praise God for the country we live in, our free market policy, if that was suspended or maybe even just secondary to a worldview that said, I'm becoming more like Jesus. What if that was the whole game? What if that was the whole deal? And then, yes, sure, there's some other benefits, like you go get to meet him, and he says that you're justified in front of me. That's not bad either. Yeah, we get that too. Good. Okay, verse 2 and 3. He goes on. We have an issue. In which you formerly lived, in which you formerly lived, verse 2, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we're under attack. This is a real practical reminder. We're under attack. Why? Why do even believers, we still slip and we fall? Remember that? We slip and we miss. We slip and we miss even as believers. Why? Well, we're still under assault. And Paul lays out very clearly. You can see them bolded. If you look at this slide, you have... Um, the world, you have the ruler of the spirit, you have the cravings of the flesh. So there's the world, just natural, circumstantial environment every day. Oh, look at what, they're, what, what, what this group of men do when they get together. And look how this group of women speak when they get together. And look what's on this screen and on my phone. And look what's over here. And I'm walking down the street and, and look, 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 look. Constant inundation of just the world's environment. And then you have the devil. Great. On top of all of that who does have the, some ability to influence, even in the air, even in this natural realm. There's a supernatural force who still operates in this natural realm. And of course, we have this thing the Bible calls your flesh, which of course is not referring to the tissue, the skin on our bodies, but rather an inborn nature, an inborn nature from day one that we just kind of have as an unfortunate handicap. You know, my son, this has played out perfectly with my seven-year-old boy. We're driving in the car as these God conversations so often happen, driving along the road, and he says, Dad, why does my heart want to lie? <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. I did not get a pass. I had a cold. I still had to do some dishes. So many baby bottles. So many baby bottles. And uh, so he says, why does my heart want to lie? And I said, son, that's a perfect question, according to Ephesians 2. That's a great question. The flesh is anything in us that gives sin its chance. I just kind of answered, sorry, buddy, you have that one since day one. It's in there. So for him, it's about the gum that he stole, or he was attempting to steal, but we caught him in a lie. As he's tucking it in the back of his mouth, and he's asking, can I have another piece? I didn't get one. You didn't get one? And he was caught in a lie. The sweet boy. But it's the same thing for every single one of us. Where's the crack in our armor? Where's the part of our flesh that is an open door maybe for sin to take root? In your marriage, in your parenting, in your dating, in, with your routines, your home-based routines. When you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night, the most amazing opportunities. How we start our day. Hello, we're in the new year. Figure out how to start your day. Stop yelling at God for all your problems and figure out how to start your day, man. 
You can choose gratitude. You can choose to love your spouse if you start your morning a little bit differently. And how you wind down your day. What are we doing in our home base, in our routines, and the way that we choose to not let flesh take root and become sin? There's a practical example all over the place. And yet, as we talk about, okay, we're still believers. We're believers, Ben. We're on this side of the cross. We've been saved. We have great authority. We have great privileges of this grace we've received. So, Ben, what is the difference? So far, I feel like we're both kind of messed up here. Well, I love what one author says. He puts it so plainly. This is for those who are born again. Born again, you're, that's where we get that term. You're recreated. you got a new heart. When you say yes to Jesus, you get a new heart. It's a miracle. But this is what he says we're still, this is the condition that we find ourselves as believers. What he creates with the Holy Spirit, what God creates is an embattled, not yet perfect, spirit-empowered, persevering, Christ-treasuring, sin-hating new being, a new creation in Christ. It's beautiful. And those are the authorities, and those are the privileges, and those are the beautiful things. And yet somehow, sometimes, I believe, for those of us who have fallen into the motions of Christianity, that last one gets me, sin-hating. Do I hate sin as much as I ought or as much as I could? I don't know. Sometimes I have those cracks in my armor and I fall and I entertain and my flesh wins out in that battle. It's an important distinction to understand. And yet Paul has words. He has words as we, as we go into this last bit here. Children of wrath. That's severe. Like that's so extreme. He's talking to a Gentile audience in the first century. These are people that don't know Jesus yet. They're still learning about him. They're asking questions. They're in process. And, and so we have this picture of children that, of course, assumes a parent-child relationship. This is so critical before we turn the corner and we pivot. When we give into flesh, when we give into our flesh, this, this unfortunate handicap from day one, and we cross our God, our, our Father, we sin against him. It's not just a sin against a moral code. It's not just a sin against the law. It's a sin against the very heart of the Father. That is a grievous and gross and, and horrible thing. It is such a mean and nasty thing. When I had that spat with my dad, when I froze out my dad, we were in a battle, and, and the, the insurance problem could be fixed. The company may have budget to repair the harm of whatever it was, the customer service issue. And there's insurance for that exact reason, to cover the loss. But the stripe that had been dealt to my heart was not going to be repaired. In one conversation or one month or even several years, I took that with me for years and years and years. I took that as a slant on the type of work that I wanted to do. And I took that as a patronizing comment about who I could be and who I was meant to be and, and how I could be a real leader or not. The damage done to the heart was so critical. So there's a parent, a child, uh, a parent relationship here that's so important. Take the, the example of law. So this is a picture from Twitter. This is a social media platform where people can go and share their most profound ideas about the whole world. And this is a comment that I came across uh, this last week from a guy named Sean. He's a, a former large church pastor turned kind of social justice advocate. He's referring to an issue. You can see the little girl's face who was killed. Uh, she was killed last Sunday in the Houston neighborhood. And what Sean is asking for in the post, he says, I will give money. I will literally raise $35,000 that then became $100,000 to find the killer because the killer got away. And I will raise this sum just to bring this killer to justice. And I saw that clip and it got me thinking, you know, that's so good. 
that he is hungry for justice. Vance was just up here a second ago. Micah, the book of Micah talks about that. We should be hungry for justice as God followers and people who love Jesus. We should be hungry for justice. This guy's willing to even maybe put crazy sums of money on the line to hunger for justice. It's beautiful. But especially parents in the room or those who have a parent, which is everyone then, we understand that the for that woman, for that mom who lost that little seven-year-old girl, do you think any amount of law and justice is going to possibly repair the gaping wound in her heart from losing her seven-year-old? No, not ever. Not on this side of heaven. Not on this side of actually going to meet Jesus. Is that ever going to happen? And yet that seems to be our quest sometimes, you guys. We're in the fairness market. We're in the justice market. We believe that that is ours to go and grab and have in the breaking of a heart, and it's God's heart that's being broken. In the breaking of a heart, no legal justice will suffice. In the breaking of a heart, repayment or insurance won't cover that. When we slip and we miss against the heart of a father, it's extreme. It's extreme, but guess what? Here's the beauty. It's not irreparable. It is not irreparable. Look where Paul goes when he turns the corner here into verse 4. It's beautiful. Get excited, okay? Here we go. Hang on with me. Here it comes. There's no amount of daddy wounds in the room. You got daddy wounds? There's no amount of daddy wounds in the room that cannot be repaired, says Paul. Let's look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, you are saved, exclamation point. Can we get a little clap? Can we just get a little cheer for that? Is that okay? Is that good? Some of you aren't clapping. I can see you're not clapping, and I'm not sure that the gift maybe has been lost on you, okay? It's been lost on me. I can admit that. I confess that. Sometimes it is. We're going to get there. Verse 5, though you were dead in transgressions, comma, you made us alive. In death, you made us alive. There's an urgency in access to Paul's words. If you can sit there and imagine him, he's writing this letter. He's maybe close to death. He's in prison. You look at the first century. Paul's at the last quarter, his last messages to the people he loves. These group of new believers, not yet believers, trying to figure out life. And he wants them to know, while you were still dead, he made you alive in that moment. In that time of even in sin, being estranged and alienated, you can close the gap. You can close the gap in an instant. God, through his mercy and grace, closes the gap. Why did God allow the prodigal son to stay in the Bible? Why did he make sure that the prodigal son would have prominence and be something that's even known in culture? The prodigal son is so critical because he knew that we would forget. He knew that we would think that we are not welcomed back. He knew that we would think the door is not going to be open for us. And yet, what does daddy do when the son thinks all is lost and I'm so estranged and I'm never going to close this gap? He opens the door and welcomes him in. He opens the door. It's never closed. You think I was upset in that issue with my dad? You would think that I was. I tried to ice him out. My pride was hurt. I felt less than. It was a father wound. It became one. I didn't even know it then, but it did, and I was hurt. You know what? No one was hurt more than my dad. Because what I learned two days later, after we came back together and I'm at the house, what I learned is that it was his, first, it was his worst fear realized. His worst fear was always that one of his four kids would come to work for him, and that they would get in a spat, or they would get in a fight, they would get in a disagreement, and they would part ways sharply, and that that would be a huge mark on their relationship. And he never wanted that to happen with one of his kids. And for two days, with me icing him out, the wound was far greater for him. 
And he welcomed me in. He closed the gap. He loved on me. He hugged me. He said, I love you. With tears in his eyes, welcomed me back in. Closed that gap. The access that we have to the Father. While we were still dead, he made us alive. He made us alive. I'm going to live into this moment because it's so important. Made us alive while we were dead is what? It's called the resurrection. You guys ready for your Sunday pop quiz? Anyone want to do trivia? Any trivia lovers out there? We got church. We at church. It's Sunday, and we're going to do some trivia. You guys ready? Okay, lukewarm, but I can do something with that. I can work with lukewarm. Are you ready? Okay. There are three people raised from the dead. Three people raised from the dead in the Gospels. Excluding Jesus, who were they? Name even one. Lazarus is so easy. So easy. I got two others besides Lazarus. Who was it? Who was it? A little bit louder. Who? Oh, we're stuck. Okay, Jesus still loves you. Don't worry. Someone might have said, but I couldn't hear you. There's the widow's son. The widow's son was one of them. And then we, thank you, bonus over there. Good job. You win. Extra credit points with Jesus. I'm going to get there in a second. Just let me get there, okay? How extra credit points work. That was a joke. There's no extra credit points. Okay, good. Let's keep moving here. Why is resurrection so important? Made dead, we were dead, and he made us alive. Those physical resurrections, as cool as they were, all they do is picture a spiritual resurrection in you and me. And if you're not a believer yet, what's available to you is a resurrection power. Oh my goodness. Wow. It says that we shared, it says made us alive together with Christ. Look at the screen. Made us alive together with Christ. Alive with Christ. That means we share in the resurrection. What? That's crazy, and that's power that no worldly discipleship can buy. That is tremendous. That has such impact for our lives. Paul is talking about that speed, that access to new life, and there is speed. Look what, look what it says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick. It's the King James Version. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sh- sword. It is, it is swift. The access that we get back to the Father. When we were once estranged and we were alienated, he closes the distance. It is urgent, but it's also powerful. Shall we, so we share in his resurrection power. That's pretty neat. I could stop right there. That's pretty cool. I could just say, amen, let's take some communion, let's get on out of here and just go enjoy the resurrection power that you share with. But another really good question would be, why? Why, 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 why? Why would he do that? Why would he invite us into such a picture? Why would he invite us into such a relationship? That's crazy. That's incredible. Well, look at verse 6 and 7. This is what it says in verse 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. To what? One, one, One more time. To what? To demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. A reminder that we, as those who have said yes to Jesus, get to be walking pictures of his gift of grace. That we could be on display. That we could be a demonstration of his resurrection power. Wow. It's so simple. It's right there in the text. Why? Why would he, why would he go in and save a wretch like me? Me, really me, personally, Ben Appleby, why would he go in and save a wretch like me? So that maybe his will and his life and his heart could be put on display. That his grace could be put on display as I serve my wife in the home, as I put my kids first in the home. We are sent. 
Don't forget that. Yes, we slip and we miss. Even to this day as believers, we slip and we miss, but we're sent. We have an amazing amount of sentness on us, placed on us, on our shoulders, on our heads, on your hearts. You have, it's not a word. I understand. We have this amazing amount of sentness on each and every one of us in the room to demonstrate God's grace in the world, his miraculous grace. Yet we forget. We forget our sentness. And we do forget And there's one other key thing that we really forget. If you look at verse 8, this is what it says. I love the reminder in verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not from works so that no one can boast. I like one translation, how it reads. It's not on the screen, but it says that you had nothing to do with this. (laughs) You had nothing to do with this. God did love you. He did see his image planted on you, especially if you're a new believer or you're not yet said yes to Jesus. You do have the image of God stamped on you, which is one heck of a thing. So he did see that in us, but he offered a gift out of his own love, the passage says. Nothing we did, nothing we did or accomplished or achieved invited that in. Nothing we had to do with it. I'm sorry, but we forget Again, career Christians in the room, sometimes we forget, don't we? I'm awakened this morning, even as I walk in this morning, to so many examples of of the practical worldly grace that we've received that we forget so easily. A couple who's lived apart for many months. They've lived apart for so many months, and now they get to spend Christmas together. That is a grace that was suspended, but now they know how beautiful and gracious that is. A family traveling in a migrant crisis who has no roof over their head. Wow. We would not forget the, the treasure that a home is if we were in that environment. Having a helper in our home or in our work, we lost our assistant because there was tough economic times. Wow, we're doing twice the work. How do we take that for granted? How do we forget? And Paul's words are there to remind us, not of our own, do we receive this gift of grace. And when we live, when we live in this fair market, everything should be fairness, and I should get what's coming to me, and I deserve the raise, and I deserve the affirmation from my spouse or the one I'm dating or my roommates. I cleaned up. You didn't even notice. You didn't even say anything. I deserve. It's fair that I would get those words or that I would get that credit. What I read in Scripture is that you had nothing to do with it. The gift, we were totally undeserved, but it was extended to us anyway. Receive the gift, be reminded of the gift, and what comes with the gift. This is critical. On into verse 10. This is so vital. Verse 10. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we might do them. This is like a Christian debate somehow. I don't know how. I don't know why. I I, I don't know why. (laughs) The, The text is so clear. God extends his gift of grace by what he does. We had nothing to do with it, remember? And we do respond amazingly by the Spirit of God in us. It helps us respond and answer and respond to the call. And from that gift of grace, we produce good works. So I have a picture, okay? I created this very complex, very intense diagram, okay, that explains the mysteries of Paul and the tensions of our entire belief system in one picture, because it really is, apparently. It's so complex. Here's what it is. Good works do not equal salvation. Remember what I said? Totally unique to the Christian worldview. All the good works on earth, there's no credit or point system, will not equal salvation. But, however, if salvation does not equal good works, we have a discipleship problem 
you guys. We have a, a demonstration problem. We have a, a, a workmanship problem. And, and as the band comes up and we start to wind down, I want to talk about works, workmanship. There's a beautiful word there that Paul uses only twice. We actually only find it twice in the New Testament. This word for workmanship, some of you may know it as poema. What English word does poema sound like? Go ahead. Poem. Poem. That we are God's workmanship. Poema. Poem. We are a artful masterpiece. You know what's so incredible about that? It's no small, subtle thing being created as, as his workmanship, his master work of art. I'll tell you how big it is. If you think, oh, that's neat, man. I've been told before. Got God's image stamped on me. You know, I reflect the image of the maker. Right on. That's good. He loved me. Yes, oh, he loved me. I heard the passage before about how he loved me. You know what the other reference is in the New Testament where Paul uses that word? It's in Romans 1. He talks about the creation of the universe as poema. The creation of the universe as poema. An artful masterpiece. And then later in Ephesians 2, he's talking about the new believer, the person with a regenerated heart, a recreated heart, a recreated work, creation. He likens creation with the new believer. You guys, there is no two more wonderful masterpieces in the whole world. We're getting lumped in as believers. We're getting lumped in with the creation of the universe. What? The masterful orientation of how the stars and the sky and the sun and the planets and the temperature works masterfully together. Unknown galaxies we can't even see. And you, as a new creation in Christ, are on the same playing field and, and, and level as that? What? What are we talking about? What are we even doing? That's incredible. And we're sent. You guys, we have this incredible amount of sentness on us. There's, there's a wonderful story. Um, I think it's true. <laughs> this guy, William Henry Houghton. William Henry Houghton was a somewhat well-known Christian figure at the churn of the the 20th century, who was a, a pastor and evangelist. Uh, he was a fourth president of the Moody Bible Institute, which is a thing. Uh, half of us don't know what that is, but it's some kind of important thing, at least at that time as well. And uh, so he's a president, he's a pastor. He was known for his evangelism. He was known for his love and passion for the Bible. And he was, the story goes, he was to take a new pastorate in Atlanta. And someone not so sure about his credibility and his track record, hired a private investigator to follow Mr. Houghton, to follow him around. And what was the report of the private investigator at the end of several days? He said, this man practices what he preaches. This man's life is poema. An artful masterpiece put on display for the whole world to see. This is a grace that does equal profound, beautiful, and wonderful works. And that is not just some special 100-year-old Bible Institute dude. That's you and me that we are invited into to reflect God's masterpiece in the home where we do our training ground or where we're sent out and reflect that. And that is no small thing to share in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That is no small thing. 
want to invite you. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to take communion. And I want you to be reminded, like we're reminded from Paul's words this morning, that you take the, the, the juice and you take the cracker, and you have a reminder of the resurrection power paid once and for all, but good again and again and again in your life when you depart from this place on Sunday morning. Take the cracker, take the juice, and be reminded that you have an incredible sentness on your life. No matter how inadequate you may feel, no matter how jacked you may feel because you slipped and missed too many times this last week, no matter what, even in that, he swiftly makes contact with you and emboldens and empowers you with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what resurrection is, is on you as you are sent. So I pray in the name of Jesus, God, Be with us as we are sent from this place. Be with us as we go into our homes, as we go into our rest places this Sunday, as we we go into work. God, may your resurrection power be on us. May we be reminded that the same power that raised you is alive in all of us. And that's not for nothing, God. That is to be used as a demonstration of your grace. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that you could use a wretch like me. You could use a sinner like me, God. Oh, man, there's still work to be done. There's still work to be done in me. There's still work to be done in us. Thank you, God, that you're not finished. Be with us now as we take uh, the cup and the bread and we be imparted with something that helps us be a demonstration of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.